is Sit Rep on BFBS. Ukraine and Russia, what's really going on? Tony Blair says the Middle East is a mess and the West must take notice. What is presently happening there still represents, in my view, the biggest threat to global security of the early 21st century. Why has Obama been to Japan and the journalist turned media ops reservist and back again? Can that ever work? Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. This time last week, a peace agreement was reached in Geneva between Russia and the Ukraine. This time this week, it doesn't seem to be worth the paper it was written on. If anything, the countries are closer to conflict than before. I'm joined by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and here in the studio with me, our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Professor Rogers, let's start with you. How has this happened? Uh, very difficult to say because it's not at all clear that uh, the Russians under Putin are actually controlling uh, the very pro-Russian groups right across eastern Ukraine. One would basically say that essentially they are being given free reign. But I think external analysts aren't completely sure about this. I think there's a lot of sort of individual movement going on in eastern Ukraine, uh, not fully under the control of the Russians. But certainly the end result of this is is quite a flare-up and the Ukraine command who moved into the stronghold of Slovyansk this morning, a very strong indication of this. And the reports are that at least two people are being killed in the process of trying to clear roadblocks. Yes, as you say, armoured vehicles into the town, cleared checkpoints on the outskirts of the town there. Christopher, do you go with what Paul says there about the fact that Putin isn't in charge of these Russian separatists? There's a great tradition, if if it is a tradition, uh, this very rarely, you really get the outsiders in control. When we have this, for example, in Syria, we can have a Syrian uh, uh, so-called agreement in in Geneva, and yet the people on the ground say, listen, we don't get anything out of this. And this is exactly what's happened. What has got to be decided by somebody who's got to figure out how much control or how much influence that Putin might have in the longer term is there a chain of, of command? Is there a system that can actually get right down and move in, say, from the Crimea, where, where you have the uh, what we would probably call the divisional command mm. to take care of these people? The answer is probably not, and that is the huge difficulty. It is unlikely that you can actually sort of pull these people back unless unless you've offered them something. And one of the things that you've got to offer them is um, uh, authority, and one of the things that you find it very difficult to do is offer authority. Now, we've got the elections coming up. Is there any way that we're moving towards that, perhaps, so that you can actually say this will be your authority? But the first difficulty you actually have is to say to people, come out of those buildings. Because when they come out of those buildings, they have absolutely nothing. And that, you can't control that from the Kremlin. Yes, Paul Rogers, it's game over if they come out of the buildings. As Christopher says, there are these elections coming up in the Ukraine. So why would they change their position now? Why not wait to see what happens next? I don't think they have sufficient confidence that they will get greater autonomy or at least greater influence after the elections. And so I think now that they're in a fairly strong position in some of these buildings, they want to at least hang on for as long as possible. And the indications are that the Russians may not actually be able to to handle this, to actually keep them under control. The problem is that if you go right across much of eastern Ukraine, there are elements among the Russian-speaking minority who actually would like a much firmer reunion with Russia. Many 
others are more dubious. Uh, not everybody wants that. And so you're getting a wide range of motives, but the ones who are absolutely determined probably do have pretty good links with across the border with Russia, but it's not at all clear that they in any sense represent the majority. So one hopes at least that this will be another example of things slightly flaring up and cooling down afterwards. Putin obviously is, is proving very popular at home with what he's doing, but he knows full well that for Russia almost to take on real influence in Ukraine is something of a poison challenge because of all the economic problems, not just in Crimea, but in, in Donetsk as well. Christopher? It, it, here's an example where we, we have, to, have to remember experience in these affairs, whether it be Northern Ireland or whatever, and that is that the groups that take action, sometimes they have nothing else. Mm. Sometimes yeah. this is their whole status. Um, also, they did mistrust the people that are supposed to be supporting them in an enormous way. So go from the experience in 1969 in Northern Ireland, go to, the, go to uh, perhaps in more modern times Syria, go to Egypt, mm. and you will find that the, this, this thing is repeated all the way through. The other thing that's happening now, of course, is that they look to Putin, perhaps, and say, well, what would he do? You know, we spend a lot of time saying, well, you know, we can't in the West, we actually can't do anything, and that's why Putin is so brave and, or, 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 so, or so sure that he can, he, he can he cause a bit of a storm. But they look and say, well, what will Putin do? And when he says, uh, I will not stand by if, if, if our Russian nationals are, are, are injured or, or, or worse, um, they say, oh, yes, would he? No, we're on our own. And then you can imagine in those buildings the whole organization or disorganization mm. builds up the whole emotion builds up that you've got to be awake 24 hours a day somebody has siege mentality it is the siege yeah. mentality and the worst part and i'll tell you one thing is, is, is if you must never look at this day by day because this takes a long time to sort Yes, we are looking at it as a linear process from the unrest in February in Kiev, the toppling of the government there, to, to where we're at now. But there's so many more parts that feed into this, aren't there, Paul Rogers? Uh, particularly the West's influence or inability to influence what is happening in Ukraine. What did you make yesterday when we heard the news that RAF jets were scrambled after a Russian aeroplane a jet flew too close to UK airspace? Can we read anything into that? Well, this was a bare H. Um, there have been something like eight incidents of this in the past year or so. Uh, the plane did not come into British airspace. Um, it's possible that somebody in the, in the Russian Air Force thought, well, now would be a chance to, just to remind people that we exist. Beyond that, I'm not sure you can read too much into it. As I say, it's not uncommon for typhoons to be scrambled out of Lucas up in Fife. Mm. Uh, it's been a regular occurrence over many years. Uh, and the bear is, I think, about a 50-year. It may even be older than the B-52. It's a very elderly plane, which is frankly primarily reconnaissance. This is a bit of a trial, probably coming from somebody in the Air Force who thought, oh, let's add this in. And, and that leads on, really, for both of you, gentlemen. Is this something that Russia is in some ways enjoying? It's having an influence over the West, and Embassy Foreign Office, the other national organisations and powers, can't really predict the way this is going to go, can they? Paul, first of all, you. No, I think you're absolutely right there. I mean, uh, Russian friends of mine say, you know, Putin is very popular in Russia. Uh, there's still this very 
sort of deep feeling of resentment of how the Russia, Russia was treated by the West in the 1990s. Mm. And I think, in a sense, the, the Foreign Office, uh, by and large, and particularly the politicians, didn't get a full handle on the, the Russian view, not just on Crimea, but Ukraine as a whole. This feel almost of encirclement. It seems nuts to us, but certainly not to the Russians. Christopher Quigley. Um, if I were the commander of the Russian Northern Fleet... And I was thought, here's an opportunity, ain't it just? And so you send down an old Yudeloy, as they did on Good Friday, down into sort of UK or North Norwegian sea waters. It's going back to the old days of doing it. So you send down a, a bear hotel, which was like sending the days when you sent badgers and bisons and bears down, and then the RF uh, fan- phantoms would take off from Lucas, and they go and they wiggle at each other and they'd show pictures of Playboy to each other and they do all that sort of thing. It was a regular th- regular point. But if I were running the RAF from Lucas, I'd say, keep doing that because I want to know how long it takes me mm-hmm. to select and get alongside the aircraft. Forget what the Russians find out. In the end of the day, it is, uh, it, it is part of the whole process. Christopher, thank you for now. Paul, also thank you for now. Still to come, tensions in the Far East between China and Japan and poacher turned gamekeeper. We talked to a journalist who served as a reservist with media ops in Afghanistan. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, Tony Blair says the West needs to wake up to the danger of Islamic extremism. In a speech this week, he said the real threat to global security comes from the preaching of radical Islam. At the root of the crisis lies a radicalised and politicised view of Islam. An ideology that distorts and warps Islam's true message. The threat of this radicalised Islam is not abating. It is growing. It is spreading across the world. It is destabilising communities and even nations. It is undermining the possibility of peaceful coexistence in an era of globalisation. Paul Rogers, why has he said this now, do you think? I think Blair still feels very strongly on this issue, and whatever you think of his views, he has a consistency which stretches over more than a decade. He does see it very clearly in almost religious terms, a sort of good versus evil, and he focuses very strongly on this kind of Islamist extremism, as he calls it. Why now? I think it's because he sees the situation in Syria really getting even worse, quite apart from the utter human cost. The reality is you have a much stronger Islamist element operating within the country, offering in many cases much uh, opposition to the um, to the Assad regime in spite of divisions within the groups. And I think he sees this as a new threat. And we had only today this report that the Home Office wants to have a, a much stronger involvement in trying to prevent young radicals going from Britain. Christopher, is he right in what he's saying? Um, he's right in as much that there can't be a, a single analyst who doesn't look at the possibility now that if you were looking around for a great war uh, and not a state-to-state war you'd be looking at uh, Islam but deeper than that you'd be looking at something else and that's the very real possibility that the war as a uh, asymmetrically the war will develop as Shia versus Sunni not necess- and then what happens Shia versus Sunni then both sides point fingers at other countries and say, you supported them, you supported. And so that's the, 
Uh, and that's the difficulty there. But you also, as Paul says, you, you, you start looking at Syria. From Syria, you go to Lebanon, Shia. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, you spread to Iran, Shia there, Hezbollah back into Lebanon. Um, and then you begin to see what's going on in Iraq at the moment with the, the aggression of, of Sunni, a game versus uh, Shia, uh, with revenge politics at the centre of government. And suddenly you realise that it is not simply... Uh, is Islamic uh, governments or not Islamic governments, Islamic groups sort of coming here into the United Kingdom or even operating so at the extent they do so in Nigeria. It is something which is actually setting fire to the whole of the Middle East with very big countries threatened, including, for example, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, the, the Gulf states. That is what has excited Blair for the past 10 years mm. and he's repeating it and he's going to repeat it more and more, especially his job in the Middle East uh, is it, it doesn't really exist. Paul, his speech hasn't gone down particularly well. He's been accused of warmongering, amongst other things. Should people be listening to him in his role as Middle East envoy? Or does he show here a, a lack of understanding, as Christopher has alluded to, of the complex makeup of what we often dismiss as just the Islamic world? I think one should certainly take Blair seriously. I mean, he does have a huge amount of experience. Uh, beyond though that, uh, beyond that though, I think one has to be really very cautious. One of the problems immediately is if you set this up as he does, not so much as Chris rightly says on the Shia-Sunni split, but as a war between the West and um, Islamism or the Islamist cause, then essentially this is almost music to the ears of those radical Islamists. Uh, Al-Qaeda desperately wanted a very strong reaction from the United States after the disaster of 9-11, and it got it. It was what Al-Qaeda wanted. And in a sense, if your other side, so to speak, actually wants a war, wants more confrontation, then to say this is the way forward, I, I think, can be dangerous. And I think it's for this reason that people are really cautious in, in reacting to Blair, added to which, of course, the, the attempt to control Afghanistan and Iraq during his watch, although they were American initiatives primarily, went terribly wrong. Of course, since the Arab Spring, it's been a time of turmoil in the Middle East, particularly for us in the West watching on. You know, a, a stable um, dictator maybe in some ways is what we were used to. Things have changed. We've seen lots of examples of that. Syria, for example, is the latest one, and it's drawing British people in. I mean, today this this statement from British counter-terrorism police urging Muslim women to come forward if they believe male relatives are planning to fight in Syria. Some figures suggest 20 have been killed over there. Um, Paul, is is that going to have any effect? It'll have very limited effect. I think, in fact, to be fair to uh, what the British police have been saying, this is a w only one part of a, of a change in strategy to involve Muslim communities much more. And if it goes as far as, if you like, trying to decriminalise the idea of young men going to Syria, many of whom do not go to fight with the more extreme elements, if it does serve to help decriminalise it, that might help. I don't think it's going to have very much impact in the Muslim community just this way alone, but it does each, at least draw people's attention to the fact that because very young men get this idea that they must go and fight, it doesn't necessarily mean they're criminals. Christopher, several months ago we were hearing clear assertions a year ago or more now that Assad will be gone very soon. He's now called elections in Syria. The West does nothing. Why is Western policy on Syria such a mess? Uh, next question is, why <laughs> is Western policy on major issues, not so much a, West, uh, a mess, but uh, inadequate? Mm -hmm. If we go back to what we started talking about, the Ukraine... 
Why wasn't Ukraine spotted earlier? Why wasn't a greater understanding, for example, of Putin, sort of uh, uh, persuading prime ministers, not just here, but in the communities that prime ministers go to, like NATO, like the EU? Um, in around <clears throat> the world, there are things, well, certainly in the Foreign Office and the Defence Ministry, there are things called red teams. And red teams have been around uh, really, I suppose, since the maybe 80s, um, maybe, Paul, about the 80s, 80s, 90s? No, even earlier, as far as the, the Soviets were concerned, yes. Yeah, and the red team's job was to look at the then Soviet Union and explain what it all meant. But in terms of East versus West... What nobody has ever done, the, these great red teams, and, and they were very good at what they did, was to take it further yeah. and look at the ambitions further and look how, for someone like Putin, even going back to Brezhnev, uh, say, what do they want further than the near abroad? What do they want further in the world? And I think that is the basic weakness which exists in, in, in understanding Putin and his, his mm. light. But it's also the basic misunderstanding that even the camels of the Foreign Office have not managed to do in the whole Middle East, and therefore they joined the wrong side, they joined the rebels, believing that Assad would be running away in about 30 minutes. Mm. Let's uh, move on and talk about another area of uh, foreign policy that's uh, taking our interest at the moment. Um, President Obama, he's in Japan at the moment, part of a tour there to four different countries uh, in Asia. And he's reaffirmed America's support for Japan in this ongoing row with China over disputed islands in the East China Seas. He's harked back to a sort of post-World War II mechanism that if Japan is attacked, the US uh, commits to defend them. Uh, Paul Rogers, why has Mr Obama done this? Well, it's part of his, his tour of Asia. As you say, he goes on to, I think, South Korea, Malaysia and the Philippines. As far as Japan is concerned, he's treading a tricky line. He wants to maintain good relations with China while at the same time trying to keep in with the Japanese. Uh, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, is really playing the nationalist card a lot here. Mm -hmm. So the Senkaku Island issue, as that's using the Japanese name, as Obama did, it plays well at home. Uh, but Obama's actually being really cautious on this. While he said that if push absolutely came to shove, uh, the Americans would back the Japanese. In other words, if China tried to take over the islands by force, he was very strong in saying that it really must not come to this, that diplomacy is the way out. Although it's uh, rather overshadowed by this particular spat, he's also very concerned at trade relations with Japan. And I think one of the reasons he's being so bending over backwards on this issue is he wants concessions from Japan on some of the trade issues. It's been relatively easy, Christopher, in the years since the Second World War for America to back Japan, as as they state here. But Japan is changing now. We've seen the Prime Minister visiting this shrine to those who died during the Second World War and a sort of reassessment of their colonialism in the 20s and 30s. It's much harder now for America to back Japan. How will China react? Well, I think it... it I'm not sure it is harder, if I may say so. Uh, the shrine, for example, is uh, it, it's not quite our cenotaph, but it's that sort of thing. Mm. It's a cenotaph to the memory of two and a half million people who died either <clears throat> as, as service people, but also civilians. Uh, the, and the Yasu, uh, Yasukuni shrine is a very, very holy place, but it's a highly political place. Yeah. And so when, just before Obama arrived, I think it was about 150 of the politicians went there pay their respects. The Chinese got really grumpy about it, and so did the Koreans. Uh, but this is actually asserting authority 
as well. The second thing that's happening, and I think this is going to take a lot of explaining later on, I think that the Japan is trying to move away from its self-defense force that yes. was imposed after the Second World War. And it's going to be a much larger force. It is building at a, a tremendous rate. And it wants to take part in things that are going on across the world, and it wants to be part of the coalition of the women, of, of, the, of the willing that um, Obama would, would, would respect. That is changing the very nature of a country <clears throat> that was accused of war crimes, that was the only country uh, that was ever bombed with nuclear mm. weapons. It is a total change. I actually think the Americans are encouraging this. They may well be. Um, Obama is certainly encouraging in the fact that he's visited Japan, uh, Paul Rogers, and those other three countries, but not China. Why has he not gone to China? I think on this occasion, he wants to stay some distance from China. I think if and when he visits China, it will be a single visit to China and no other country. And he may well try to do it, but not for several months. He sees this as separate. At the moment, he's concerned with Eastern Asia and Southeast Asian allies. China is a very big issue. And in a way, I think if he was to visit China uh, along with four other countries, uh, the Chinese themselves might be slightly miffed. Okay, Professor Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Many thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Right, Christian Hill is with me now in the studio. He's a radio journalist, currently plying his trade at BBC Radio Leicester. But until recently, he was also a reservist working in the MOG, the Media Operations Group, and deployed to Afghanistan in 2011 to work as part of the Combat Camera Team. Kept a diary of his time there, which has now been turned into the book Combat Camera, from Auntie Beeb to the Afghan Frontline. Very striking colour. It's got a, a, a what looks like a soldier here. It is, of course, a soldier with a camera operating in a desert environment. Great cover. Let's people know what's in the book, Christian. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming along. First of all, what is your motivation? Why did you write this book? Well, there are lots of books about Afghanistan which focus on the combat side of things, the bombs and the bullets. I didn't want to write that kind of book. I also wanted to focus on the stuff that happens in between. So you get the whole spectrum really because I was in a very privileged position in that um, I, I got to see everything. Sometimes we'd fly out to patrol bases and uh, interview the troops, go out on patrol with them. Sometimes we would uh, uh, cover some of the uh, fluffy stories mm. that, as, as we called them. So for instance we might cover a story about the, the veterinary care that the British Army gives to, to local Afghan farmers and their, their many goats which feature on, on the cover there. They're on so, the cover, yes. They're on the cover. <laughs> so uh, it, it's that whole spectrum, really. So I wanted to convey some of that. What do you think, though? I mean, the interesting thing from my point of view as a journalist, I've been out to Afghanistan on a couple of tours, and it is a hugely difficult environment to work in and totally worthy of a book because it is so alien to what we do in this country. But working for the BBC, as you do, you, you know, your job is meant to be impartiality, isn't it? You're meant to set out the news and is in an impartial way as possible. But media ops isn't like that. They mm. they sort of have things they want to get out that reflect their message. So you do tend to have occasions where stories are not allowed out. Mm. How do you reconcile that, being a, a sort of impartial journalist on the one hand, but for this period of time being someone who has to, in effect, be censored? Well, at, at the time, I just accepted the fact that I was on the Army's payroll, so I just did the Army's bidding. But I told myself at the time that, um, and I guess this is one of the luxuries of being a reservist, is that I told myself that uh, when I was back home, I might 
rethink my actions and think, well, maybe there's things there that I saw and witnessed that I might want to talk about. Uh, and as it, as it happens, I've written this book and uh, I've essentially had to leave the reserves to, to be able to publish it as it is because uh, I no longer have that impartiality which you know is expected of serving members of the armed forces. How's it been affected your career as a journalist? How difficult was it to slot back into that after you returned? What, to go back to my, my mm. day job at um, at the BBC? Uh, that was fine, actually. I mean, the, the BBC have actually always been very good about um, about the fact that I was in the TA. Um, but uh, yeah, at the same time, they you know they have told me not to be. <laughs> they, in a way, they they've sort of uh, not censorship as such, but they've told me not to be too critical about the MOD. As it happens, I don't think I am critical about the MOD in the book. Christopher, I mean, you, you have worn the twin hats over your career as, as journalist and someone working with the military. How do you view this situation? I don't think it's actually very difficult. Um, you obviously have an inclination if you're going to join the services in any form, whether it's TA, RNR, RFVR, for goodness sake. <laughs> uh, but you, 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 um, you've, you've got that inclination anyway. I mean, yes. Christian had the advantage of being a regular soldier. Uh, RHA, would you? That's right, beforehand. Yeah, Uh, and so had the instinct and could sort of slot into that side of it. It's interesting that uh, at the time of the Falklands War, the editor of BBC Television News was also a half-colonel in the TA. (laughs) And to explain that as a conflict of interest wasn't difficult because he worked on a very simple principle. You didn't run anything so a newspaper wouldn't publish anything that would get people killed, unless it was the enemy, or would jeopardise an operation. And it's a serious set of rules. If you haven't got those rules anyway, you're lacking in some sort of discipline that you yes. want, want to use. I, I wouldn't have thought it difficult. And those rules, Christian, very much are what we, as journalists, and what Combat Camp Team, everybody operates under, mm. the sort of OPSEC, as it's known, operational security. Um how did you find working with other journalists out there when you when you were there? They, they come along and work with media ops, and you went out on them. There's some great examples in the book as well of, of the tales of, of that sort of experience. Well, it, it was a, it was a cross section really of, of, of experiences. I mean, there was one uh, reporter who was an ex-para actually, and who was embedded with the paras, and who ended up getting his hands on military uniform and was was wearing uniform out on patrol and that and that created a whole debate about because he felt he felt that uh it made him less of a target because he thought that if he was out there dressed as a member of the press with press written across his chest he he would be a prized target to the taliban and he felt safer in in military uniform and that created uh, a few ructions actually um uh, and there were other issues as well with regard to because uh, there there is a sort of a conveyor belt, if you like, of embedded journalists that are going yeah. through Camp Bastion, and uh, there were other issues surrounding how well prepared they were and, and the time they were given to acclimatise. There is an incident in the book where one reporter who has only been in theatre for two or three days goes out on a patrol uh, and cla- collapses within about half an hour, in, endangering the patrol. It's tough, isn't it, for people going into that environment? You, of course, had that taste of it w- with with the army beforehand. Do, do you? You must value hugely this opportunity you've had to see it from almost the other perspective, with a civilian hat on, but still within the military. 
Well, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, because I felt I was in a, a unique position being on, on both sides of the fence as a journalist and as a reporter, and it did give me access to things which even embedded reporters wouldn't see, so I could see things like you know, field reports coming in as they happened. Not that I'm compromising operational security in any way, but uh, it did give me that perspective, which I felt was unique. Christian, thank you very much for coming in. I've had a, a read through. It is a fascinating book. A lot thank of it you. chimed with me from my time out there. And you even mentioned BFBS. So <laughs> it's worth it. Worth pleasure. The read. Thanks pleasure. for joining us today. Brilliant stuff. Christopher, any other business that we have that's going to uh, enliven us over the next seven days? Right. Next, next Monday, uh, the House of Commons Defence Committee, uh, back after the Easter break, is going to publish a report on the idea of intervention. What are the conditions for intervention? Who takes the decisions? Why intervene in an in a operation? And I think that is the, the current sort of thinking, background thinking Whitehall at the moment. There we have, uh, we had Syria, should we get in? We've got Ukraine, how far we should go? Mm -hmm. And when you consider that the Americans are now deploying another 800 uh, uh, people, sort of a large battalion group to, uh, to Poland, we are operating, I think, perhaps 17 sorties, for example, of reconnaissance aircraft at the moment out of Poland um, and we can still fly from Lucas which is all for part now. of the operation for, 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 <laughs> for now, now. For now, until the <laughs> September the 18th yes. um, you know it, it is this thing it is the big question any longer is the future and don't think it's a defence review next year is the future that the United Kingdom does or does not get involved in uh, outside operations otherwise, other than humanitarian aid. It's a big question going forward. Of course, we have the Afghan election results as well. Coming up, Christopher Lee, thank you for joining us. Paul Rogers earlier as well, and uh, Christian Hill as well. Thank you very much indeed. This has been Sit Rep. Um, don't forget, of course, if you'd like to join the debate, join us. Uh, you can Twitter us, as they say, at BFBS Sit Rep, and you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com forward slash Sit Rep. From me, Tim Cooper, goodbye. News, news, sport, sport, and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.